Suspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Cause the eyes of the ranger are upon you. Any wrong you do, he's gonna see. When you're in Texas, look behind you. Cause that's where the ranger's gonna be. I started to practice in law in 1928, and uh, of course the only business I could get would be criminal business. Through the ensuing years, after 1928, I've had the privilege, and I do consider it a privilege, of having some personal encounters with Capitol Hainer. As long as the sale of liquor was prohibited, prohibited under the state laws, that was one of the constant duties that the Texas Rangers had, to see that liquor was not sold. There were so many bootleggers during that time that the rangers, and as well as the other officers, could make a selected process out of which bootlegger they were going to catch each day. Ordinarily, they only caught those who were the most fragrant in their violation of the law and who made a boast of it, and who the public knew were violating the law. During this time, the uh, office of the uh, Captain Hamer and the headquarters company of the rangers in the Capitol was on the north, east uh, corner of the down uh, of the first floor of the Capitol building. From their windows of their office, they could look uh, north and over to 13th Street, which was really an alley. 13th Street ran east and west, and down about uh, two blocks from uh, the where the Rangers' offices were, one of my clients named Fred Roos lived, and he was living on the north side of 13th Street. And uh, 13th Street was really, a, uh, the way to get into it was, it was sort of an alley. But anyway, the Rangers could look out their window and see what took place at Fred Roos's house. Fred was a bootlegger. However, his clientele was more or less exclusive, and that was the, the state officials and those that liked liquor there close, and he was handy where they could order to come get it whenever they wanted it. Everyone knew the situation, and of course, the rangers had other things to do than enforce the prohibition law, and the, he, they left that to the state and federal authorities to do so. Fred had been caught one or two times by some of the officers, certainly not the rangers, and he'd paid a fine and stayed in business, and obviously he made some money. So much so, that uh, he let it be known that he was going back to the old country, which was Germany, and visit some of his old uh, ancestral homes over there, and that he was going to do that one summer there, just before Prohibition went out. And uh, it got around that Fred was going to be gone for a while. Of course, he had to let his clientele at the Capitol know about it, and uh, that was sort of a fragrant abuse of, of, uh, of his privilege of bootlegging in uh, view of the ranger's office there. And so uh, Frank uh, told his boy, he said, well, now, We'll let uh, Fred buy his tickets to, uh, to Germany. On the, he had to go by boat and said, uh, then when uh, the week before he's going to uh, catch the boat, we'll go down and arrest him, put him in jail, which they did. I represented Fred on this occasion, and since it was the second or third or maybe the fourth time that he had been caught, the court uh, felt inclined to put him in jail for a month or so rather than just let him have a fine and go on and make his trip to Germany. So that's what the court did, and of course, uh, Captain Hamer recommended such a punishment to Fred, and, and Fred was taught that, that he should not be so fragrant in abuse of the law and, and flaunt the law, and, and so he missed his trip to Europe, and the law was uh, satisfied in that manner. Everyone connected with the case except Fred Roos uh, saw the humor in the situation. The only other time that I had to confront Captain Hamer in the courtroom 
was uh, about that same time. It was about 1930 or 31. During that time, in those days, the law was that when the legislature was in session, that the uh, A.C. Baldwin and Company, printing company in Austin, had the contract to print what they called the Session Acts. All of the acts that were passed by the legislature were printed by Baldwin, and then uh, Baldwin had his uh, shop down on 5th and Congress Avenue then. And they had a truck and an old boy that uh, delivered these Session Acts up to the, the Capitol, where they were stored in the basement up there under the auspices of Mrs. McCallum, who was Secretary of State. The procedure followed was that the uh, Session Acts would be printed, and this uh, boy would take his truck, it was a covered van of some sort, and he would take that up to the east end of the Capitol, and there he would meet a black man who was a porter or something for the Secretary of State, and they would, uh, uh, the black man would sign for the, these uh, Session Acts, and then they were supposed to be taken down somewhere in the basement and, and, uh, and stored, waiting for Mrs. McCallum to sell them to the different lawyers over the state. Of course, Mrs. McCallum knew nothing about this procedure except that she was responsible for it. At this time, Mr. Gamble uh, had a bookstore between uh, 10th and 11th Streets on the west side of Congress Avenue, there where the old bakery is now. And it was called Gamble's Bookstore, and it was uh, known all over the state. Well, he not only sold uh, uh, novels and, and other matters of that kind in his bookstore and school books, but he also sold these session acts to the lawyers and sold law books over the state to the different people. And he had been buying, or the Gamma boys had been buying, uh, these session acts from the uh, Secretary of State and then reselling them to the lawyers over the state. That was the practice at that time. And I believe Mr. Gamble would, had retired. I'm sure he had because he had two sons, the oldest boy named Harry Gamble, and uh, the second boy was named John. They were about three or four years apart. Harry was, was rather level-headed, and I'm sure he was the one that run the bookstore. However, John was not only younger, and he didn't have a lot of a common sense, and he lacked a little bit in beauty. But John had the, he worked in the store there with Harry. And so uh, they conceived the idea of, of uh, making a, a short circuit of buying these uh, session acts. Uh, they made a deal with this uh, old boy that was delivering the session acts for A.C. Ball and Company up to the black boy in, 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 at the Capitol. And, that what they'd do would uh, they just take the session acts uh, up to the Capitol and let the black boy sign the receipt that he had received them, and then the uh, Baldwin boy would, uh, not the Baldwin boy, but the, their, their carrier would come on down to the uh, Gamble bookstore and deliver the, the session acts to the, for a small price to the, to the Gamble boys. It so happened that the Secretary of State was not keeping any inventory of uh, of these books as they came in and had no record of how many, but they just knew that this basement was full of them. In this way, the Gamma boys would uh, uh, save the cost of the pen Mrs. McCallum for them as they got them and paid about half price, or maybe less than that, the, the uh, short-circuiting the, the state of, of, of the responsibility of putting them in circulation. The only ones who knew of this arrangement was the delivery boy for Baldwin Company, the black boy who signed the receipts for him at the Capitol, and the Gamma boys. But they all knew, and of course they had a guilty conscience. At that time, as uh, probably now, it was the practice of Captain Hamer and the other boys of his office at noon when they got off to go to lunch, they, they would walk down uh, Congress Avenue to Luke's Cafe or, or one of the other cafes down by around 5th or 6th Street, have lunch, and uh, leisurely walk back to the Capitol when the time come because they were not real busy all the time. And so, uh, as I said, the uh, Gamma boys uh, sold all kinds of books. And uh, they had uh, a display of the uh, Wild West books in, in the window where you could walk along Congress Avenue and look into the window and see these 
these Wild West books that had Wild Earp's uh, uh, name on them and, and all the different people there. And so, of course, that was in Captain Hamer's uh, general vicinity and, uh, of, of interest. And so he and, and one of his uh, main uh, rangers you know, were walking one morning or one day uh, down for lunch, and they stopped to look at these books through the, uh, through the window. And they, they were very much interested in them, and they stood there for quite a little while. Well, John uh, uh, Gamble was, uh, saw them there, and he knew Captain Hamer was, and he had a, a guilty conscience about uh, what Hamer was doing looking in through his window there, and it, he, he conceived the idea that, that Captain Hamer had caught on to, that they were stealing from the state and that he was there getting ready to come in and, and, and interrogate John about it. So uh, John just ran out on the, st on the sidewalk and told Captain Hamer, said uh, that he'd been stealing these books and confessed to him and, and uh, told the whole story. And, and uh, it was so ridiculous that Captain Hamer and the other ranger, they paid no attention. They didn't think John was too smart, and they knew he wasn't too smart after that confession. But they went on down and had lunch. And so, uh, but being good law officers, when they got back up to the Capitol after, after uh, lunch and at that noon, they went over to the Secretary of State's office and, and asked, uh, told Ms. McCallum what had happened and, and told her to check and see if there was any losses in, uh, on the session acts. And, of course, they had no records down there, and Mrs. McCallum couldn't prove that they, they uh, had any losses at all. And so uh, the, the investigation didn't stop, though. Captain Hammer decided that he would at least interrogate the black boy that was supposed to be in charge of that. And that, he scared him in the confession also. And then they got the, the driver of the, uh, the Baldwin uh, truck, and, and he, he got scared, and he made a confession. So the uh, matter was presented to the grand jury. And the evidence that the grand jury had was, as I said, they had the oral confession that John Gamble had made. And, of course, John's oral confession uh, involved his brother Harry. The evidence presented to the grand jury was that uh, they had this uh, written confession by the driver for the Boeing bus. They had the written confession of the black boy. And they had only uh, John's oral confession. They couldn't prove the loss of the, of the uh, session acts from the Secretary of State's records at all. And in those days, an oral confession uh, could not be used against a person unless it led to the recovery of the property. And so they thought they had a case. The district attorney thought that since they uh, had found these session acts and, and their oral confession of John had led to that, well, they had a case against him. Well, uh, I represented John and Harry. They were indicted separately because the district attorney figured that if he tried John uh, by himself, uh, jointly with Harry, that would prove insanity on, on John and, and get out of it on that basis. So they indicted Harry, and, and uh, that was the one they wanted to send to the penitentiary because Harry was responsible. And so uh, that they come for the trial, and, of course, the Frank Hammer and his assistant, the, the ranger up there, was going to be the, the main uh, witnesses. And I conceived the idea of having uh, not only Harry, who was the defendant. That's the case they were going to try was Harry. He was the defendant. And John... Uh, was just to sit, he had a right to sit uh, in, next to me and next to his brother Harry at the trial. So I had uh, Harry sit in the front seat, of course, him being the defendant, and it was on trial, and Harry was right behind him. Apparently, the only time that uh, Captain Hamer's assistant there had ever seen uh, either one of the two boys was uh, at the time John made his oral confession. But anyway, he was the, the main witness, and he got on the witness stand after we'd picked the jury, and Frank was sitting, I, I put him under the rule and made Captain Hamer sit out in the hall. Well, this other ranger was not too smart, but he was a ranger, and he had, he had his pistol on, and he had, uh, carried his hat in his hand as he come in and got in the witness stand. And 
So uh, uh, he told his story, and uh, just uh, I don't know why, but when he got through, well, I said, uh, uh, Mr. Ranger, whatever his name was, I said, do you see the defendant, Mr. Harry uh, uh, Gamble, in the courtroom here? And he stuck his finger right in old, old John's face. And, of course, no one could make the mistake about who John Gamble being Harry Gamble. And I said, are you sure that this is the man who made the oral confession? He said, there's no question about it. I then turned to the judge with while the witnesses were still on the witness stand. I said, Judge, he's identified uh, someone beside the defendant as being guilty of this oral confession, and therefore it's not admissible against Mr. Harry, my, my client. The judge said, you're right, Mr. Sheldon. And he dismissed the jury and, and dismissed the case. The ranger didn't know what he had done wrong. He had no idea what was wrong. And, of course, uh, Captain Hammer didn't. He didn't know what was going on, and he was told what happened after it was over. But he had a little more respect for me after that anyway. While D.E. was in, the, the two years that he was in uh, the Rangers there, we uh, had a group of people come in from California with a little game they called the skill ball game. It was a gambling game, but it was a, uh, you'd throw a little ball and it'd bounce around in a bin and finally, uh, it's a whole lot like bingo, but it was, it was purely gambling. And so these men came to my brother Polk and I to represent them and see if they could put that game in Austin. And uh, uh, we made a deal with them whereby they would... Uh, uh, put the game in and we gave the, all the money that uh, we were to make to the American Legion and they uh, paid for their home out uh, Legion 76 they paid for their home out on uh, Lake Austin Boulevard where they now where they now have their home and it's paid for and they paid for it mainly out of the money they made for the three or four months their skill ball game went on but anyway uh, during the, the time the legislature was in session uh, uh, Mr. Edgar Witt of Waco was then lieutenant governor and he and his wife would come down every evening and play skill ball at this game well, in those days, it was not improper to uh, uh, moonlight a little bit, and so D.E. Was, was the ranger, so we hired him and gave him $50 a month, I guess, maybe $50 a week, to kind of, as a special security over the, thing, over the game. And um, so he was to walk by there on the way from the Capitol down to the Driscoll Hotel. He stayed in the Driscoll Hotel. He didn't have a home in Austin at that time. D.E. stayed in the Driscoll Hotel. So he was staying there, and then he got his $50 per, per, per week or per month, whatever it was. And so after the thing had been running about two months, well, uh, I got a call from them one night. The boys had run it, from, uh, and I was at home, and I lived in South Austin. They told me there's some boys from San Antonio, five of them in an automobile, had come up to, to shake them down and, and take part of the money because they said they was infringing on their property rights that they owned the, the game. Well, uh, that's what I'd hired D.E. Uh, e. Hamer to do to, uh, to, on his moonlight, and he's supposed to give us some security. Well, I called Captain Hamer. He was at the Driscoll Hotel, and I got him on the phone, all right, and it was after dark. And I told him that I was going to leave my home, and I'd try to make it where I'd get there about the time he did so that uh, I could uh, uh, show him who they were. And so I got in my car, and I took out over to this game, and I got there before Dr. Captain Hamer did. And... Uh, he didn't have to go but about three or four blocks, and I had to drive all the way from South Austin. But I got over there, and my clients, they showed me the car out there sitting on Congress Avenue there, parked right in front of the game, and it, it, the game was between 8th and 9th Street on the east side of Congress Avenue. And they, uh, the more saw me come in there, and, and they were just sitting there waiting for the, the, these boys to come out there with a bag of money, I guess. But anyway, I didn't go out and confront them. I waited until I saw D.E. coming up Congress Avenue. And a little while, I, just about the time I got there, really, there come Captain Hamer, and 
he didn't have his coat on and didn't have his hat on. But he's still buckling on his pistol belt. He was he come out the 7th Street entrance there of Congress, and he'd run about a block, and he was trying to buckle his pistol belt and on the, all the way up there. And so he was a puffing and a blowing when he got to this uh, game uh, location, and and I was out there waiting for him, and I felt like I was pretty safe now that Hamer was there, and I pointed out the the car that the, where the other people had uh, told me that the ones that come up had to shake them down. And he squinted his eyes over at him. <laughs> I think he recognized some of them. But anyway, he went over to the car and he said, You son of a bitches, you get back to San Antonio. Don't you ever come over to my ballywick again. I'll kill every damn one of you. Well, they knew what he said and they knew he meant what he said. They backed up and they left. And we had peace so far as the game was concerned for another month or so. Of course, when Mrs. Ferguson went out of office and, and Jimmy already became governor, uh, he was relieved of his uh, duties as captain of the rangers and frank probably went back in anyway frank became a ranger and uh, he was ranger at the time that uh, he killed bonnie and clyde <coughs> of course the exploits of bonnie parker and uh, clyde barra uh, in the middle 30s was just uh, as awful what they were doing they were just renegades killing and robbing and doing everything like that and and uh, captain hamer living in south austin and one of his assistants then was uh, Manny Galt. Manny Galt lived in South Austin, and he was a deputy ranger, or a ranger, and, and he was a very close personal friend of mine. His children went to the same Epworth League and the same church that I did, and we were just close personal friends. And so anything that uh, that uh, Frank Hamer and, and Manny Galt did was news to South Austin. And when uh, the Bonnie Clyde uh, uh, incident occurred, we, we, we knew about it. And no one, it was a setup. And of course, they, they got it by stool pigeons, and, and uh, they didn't give Bonnie and Clyde a chance to, to kill them, which they should not have done. Uh, we just uh, passed in the time of day. And while I was there talking to, to Captain Hamer, I, I had the occasion, I said, Captain, was there ever a time when you were afraid uh, to arrest a man? And he said, Emmett, he said, I was good at mobs. He said, uh, I could take a hundred men that are going to. Uh, storm a jail or, or do something mean in a mob and I could stand up with my pistol uh, on my belt and he said uh, the first guy would not would not make a move because he didn't want to be killed they knew that somebody was going to be killed and whichever one took the lead I was going to get them first and so I could control a mob but he said I do remember one instance when there was an old boy up uh, on a prairie or a plane up close to Amarillo and he'd hold up in a little house out uh, uh, two or three hundred yards from the tree line and he had held the local officers off for two or three days and, and he had done something bad he didn't tell me what it was but said they called on the rangers to come up and capture him and so I went up there with with one of my assistants and he said uh, that we went out with the local officers and there was this little one room shanty out there with a, uh, a man in it that was crazy as hell so far as I was known and they wanted me to walk across this 200 yards between the tree line and, and the house and, and arrest him. And he said, I had better sense than that. He said, that man wanted to die, and I didn't. And he said, yes, I was afraid, and I didn't go there and do it. When you're in Texas, look behind you, because that's where the ranger's going to be.